With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Price St. Clair. I'm a domestic policy reporter for the Dispatch. And today we've got an explainer podcast on the debt ceiling, what it is, how we got here, and where the current negotiations between uh, Speaker McCarthy and President Biden stand. My guest today is Ben Ritz, who is the director of the Center for Funding America's Future at the center-left Progressive Policy Institute. He's been working on budget issues since 2011, and I have found him to be a helpful guide for all things related to the debt. Ben, thanks for joining us on the Dispatch Podcast. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to start, um, I, I've written a couple articles uh, on the debt ceiling and you've been a helpful source for me, but for people who are new to this this week, um, you know, why do we have a debt ceiling? And I know it's a fairly unique thing that not a lot of countries have. So why do we have it? But then why do other countries not have it? Sure. So historically, uh, it, it used to be the case that anytime, Cong- anytime the federal government needed to borrow money, Congress would vote uh, on each instance of borrowing. And so they would vote to issue bonds. And uh, as the national needs, you know, that became more frequent, uh, they changed the law so that instead of them needing to vote every time there was a bond issue, they would say, we've, you know, we passed this amount of spending, this amount of revenue, uh, and the president can borrow, the treasury can borrow as much money as it needs to fill those needs up to a certain point. And that point is the, the debt ceiling or the debt limit, uh, depending on, on the source you're reading, but it's the same thing. Uh, and the reason that most other countries don't have this is because even though this system makes a little more sense than what we had originally, it still doesn't make a whole lot of sense. If Congress is going to pass uh, a, a series of spending bills and then a series of revenue bills, and the revenue they raise does not cover the amount they want to spend... Uh, then it makes sense that the federal government needs to borrow the money to fill the difference. Having a separate vote for whether you are going to actually do that borrowing uh, or wh- and whether you're going to pay the bills that you've already passed uh, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Right. And it can lead to this situation we're in this week where if we were to go across the X state, which I'll ask you about in a moment, um, and to actually go into default on the national debt, you know, no one really knows what would happen, but the president would be forced to break at least some laws because he's either breaking the debt limit law or the law that says you have to spend this money that Congress has appropriated. Exactly. So, yeah, with that in mind, Republicans and Democrats have been having these negotiations for a couple of weeks now, trying to avoid the so-called X date, uh, which the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has said it could be as early as June 1st. So... We know what the debt limit is, but what is the X date and why is, it, why is it sort of fuzzy and hard to predict with certainty at this point? Sure. So the important thing to, to keep in mind is that June 1st is not, the date, is not the date we hit the debt ceiling. We actually hit the debt ceiling earlier this year. But what happens when we hit the debt ceiling is that instead of 
uh, instead of continuing to to uh, to just issue new debt, what the Treasury will do is what's called extraordinary measures, which are is a, is a way of saying that they're doing uh, accounting changes by you know postponing payments into certain funds uh, and reallocating money that allows them to continue paying the bills without uh, without missing payments and without incurring more debt subject to the limit. But the problem is that those only work for a certain amount of time and then you run out of money in those you know, more flexible accounts. And we don't actually know the exact date we run out of that money because it is heavily determined by cash flows. You know, if, if a payment comes in on a certain date, you know, are our tax payments coming in faster or higher than in previous years or slower and lower? And so we get a little more clarity as we get closer to the date. But we don't actually know, you know, is this going to be the date where we don't have enough money? Because if you get enough tax payments and bills come in late enough, you might, you know, skirt it for another day. Uh, but but eventually you do run out of that room. Right. Um, and I, I want to come back to the some of that uncertainty in a moment. Um, but for now, um, can you give us a brief history of what's been going on with political conflict over the debt ceiling since 2011? Um, I remember that as being a really big deal. And the U.S. credit rating was downgraded by at least one of the firms that, that does those sort of things. So what happened in 2011 and sort of how does what we're going through now compare and contrast with that? Sure. So up until 2011, raising the debt ceiling was very, uh, was, was not really a big issue. It was, it was sort of a pro forma opportunity for, for budget negotiations, but nobody ever really held it hostage. You would you would uh, you might pair some spending reforms or tax changes to a debt ceiling vote, but it was all very superficial. Uh, 2011 was the first time where one party said, we will not vote to raise the debt ceiling unless you accede to policy demands. At the time, those demands were $1 of spending cut for every dollar of debt ceiling increase. And we came within about a week of not raising the debt ceiling and defaulting. Uh, and so that was the first time the US actually came pretty close to, to truly defaulting. And since then, Democrats have said, uh, we're never doing this again. We should just always raise the debt ceiling and we should never have to negotiate for it. And largely have been successful in that up until now, which is kind of the first big uh, debt ceiling standoff since 2011. And why, why is this the first big debt ceiling standoff since 2011? What, like, what were Democrats able to do successfully in the time since 2011 that they may be having trouble with now, or maybe Republicans have changed. What's, what's been the change? So I think the, the big change is, uh, well, I mean, there's a, there's a few things. So first of all, uh, under, under President Trump, uh, when they're, you know, Republicans, when they had unified control of government, didn't want to threaten Donald Trump with destroying the economy because that would not be good for any of them politically. Uh, so it was much easier for them. Uh, and when Democrats held Congress, they do not want to do the same debt limit brinksmanship for the most part that Republicans are willing to do. You would never have Nancy Pelosi saying, or even far left Democrats saying, well, maybe we just shouldn't raise the debt limit. Um, so, so that's really how we got through the last few years. Uh, this is now the first time where we have a, a, a Republican Congress and a Democratic president since the Obama administration. Now, as far as why we didn't have it again after the Obama administration, I think it was the Obama administration was pretty clear. Uh, we're we're, we're not going to negotiate over the debt limit anymore after 2011. But I think also 2011 
Part of the 2011 deal was that we put in place spending caps on discretionary spending. And those were in place throughout the remainder of the Obama administration. And so, uh, you know, they would debate what the level of those caps would be, but they, they would do that in the context of each annual budget. They didn't have sort of this existential big budget battle in the same way. Whereas now we don't, we got rid of those caps under Trump and the new Republican Congress, I think, is sort of itching to bring something like that back. So why did we get rid of the caps under Trump is the first question. And then secondly, how did the caps actually work and get enforced? Sure. So why we got uh, rid of the caps under Trump? Um, because the Trump administration was uh, not, a, not a paragon of fiscal responsibility. Donald Trump ran as uh, the king of debt in 2016, and he did a, a great job living up to that in, in the presidency. And, you know, when he was able to say, you know, I gave Democrats this and I got this, uh, he didn't really care about putting that on the, the national credit card. And Democrats in Congress weren't uh, particularly eager to fight on that either. As long as they could get big increases in uh, domestic discretionary spending, they were willing to sign off on quite a lot um, on the defense and the Republican priorities. So I think it really just uh, the, the, the governor on the engine uh, really fell off at that point. The, but the caps were there from 2011. That was the Budget Control Act or that ended the, that standoff. Fill me in more in detail on how those caps actually worked on a year-to-year basis for the rest of the Obama administration. Because, I don't know, the way I tend to think about it is Congress has the power of the purse and they, you know, eat, they're, what they're supposed to do is each year they pass a budget. And so I'm, it's hard for me to see how these caps are like binding Congress's future action when they could just change their minds. And apparently in the Trump administration, they did. So do the caps even work? <laughs> yeah. So uh, you're, you're right. Congress can change the caps at any moment with a vote. Uh, the way they're, they're, they're set up um, mechanically is that if Congress appropriates above the cap, then there is an automatic across the board uh, cut to the, the overage. And so typically what Congress did when it wanted to appropriate above the cap is they would both do the appropriation and they would raise the cap. Uh, there were, but, but I think the cap presented an important anchoring point. That was the starting point instead of kind of starting from scratch uh, with a number. They were, they were kind of working off this shared assumption of, okay, this is what we agreed to in the past. How much are we going to deviate from that as opposed to kind of trying to pick up the number um, not not out of thin air because we we look to last year's spending levels uh, to to guide next year's spending levels, but but it provided more of an anchoring point. The other thing to keep in mind about the caps is that they were somewhat adjustable. So, for example, uh, the original Budget Control Act, the one that passed in 2011, set the caps at a certain level, but also included a provision requiring the president and Congress to agree to additional deficit reduction through non-discretionary spending changes and tax increases. And then when they failed to do that, the caps automatically lowered to achieve that level of deficit reduction. That was what was known as the sequester. And Congress and a lot of the the remainder of the Obama administration was basically a back and forth debate about where the final cap should be between the original level and the sequester level. So actually, let's take a step back. In 2011, you said this was a relatively new phenomenon of one side of this negotiation saying, we have these policy demands, we're not going to agree to raise the limit unless, you know, you agree to these demands. What, you know, what was it that Republicans wanted at the time? And what is it that they are asking for 
now. I mean, my sense is now, like the Biden administration has been saying since January, like we just want a clean increase, which was always sort of a, you know, that was going to be a pipe dream because Republicans knew they could get some concessions. Um, but, but the Democratic position has tended to be like, they just want the clean increase. What are Republicans asking for? Rather, what were they asking for in 2011 and what are they asking for now? And if there's a deal that McCarthy and Biden reach, how similar is it going to be to what you were just talking about with the 2011 Budget Control Act? So I think the deal they reach is likely to be pretty similar to the one they did in 2011, but the starting points are very different. So in 2011, um, this was the, the, the Romney-Ryan-Boehner Republican Party. They were very focused on, uh, on long-term budget uh, and they wanted to make structural changes to entitlement pro- programs, Social Security and Medicare. Uh, Kevin McCarthy immediately took that off the table. And so what the Republicans this time are pursuing is a combination of some discretionary spending caps, uh, which the, the Republicans then did too. But in lieu of entitlement reform, they are pursuing um, some regulatory changes. Uh, they're, they're the, really, the, the Republican negotiating position is the Limit Save Grow Act that the House passed in May, um, or maybe it was late April, but it was, it was a few weeks ago. And this is a combination of deep cuts to domestic discretionary spending, increases in defense spending, uh, no real changes to Social Security and Medicare or taxes, um, except for repealing um, some tax credits from last year's Inflation Reduction Act, uh, overturning President Biden's recent executive actions on student debt cancellation, and permitting uh, permitting reforms uh, for infrastructure and energy projects. And then also some, some work requirements on a few welfare programs. These regulatory things that the Republicans want, I know permitting reform is part of the conversation. How's that stuff going to save the government money or decrease spending? Sure. So, I mean, I think there are, there are certain parts of the Republican plan that are actually just not going to save spending. So, for example, uh, they want to cut money for the IRS uh, but this money was appropriated to help the IRS crack down on tax cheats. And so you actually lose more revenue uh, from tax collections than you save from cutting the spending. And so not all of this is budgetary. There are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of provisions that they have in here because they're ideological not to save money. Um, but on the permitting side, there, there is some argument that it's budgetary because uh, we have very laborious permitting process in the United States. There's a lot of red tape. It takes years uh, to build infrastructure projects and they're subject to tons of litigation and tens and thousands of pages of review. And if you streamline that, you can get more bang for your infrastructure buck. Uh, And that, if not saving money, make sure that you get a higher return on what you, you, you get more for what you're spending. And so I think it is, there is an argument that permitting reform is a fiscally responsible thing to do. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. 
And we'll take a quick break to hear from Aura. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And I'll tell you, not only have I given this picture frame to all the moms in my life, but I'm an only child and it's been really fun to see my friends with siblings give this frame to their moms and it turn into a passive aggressive war to see which siblings can upload more pictures of their children. The Aura app is so easy. You can sit there at the end of the day while you're watching TV and just upload a couple pictures from the day and really show your brother-in-law who's boss. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code DISPATCH at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Romney Ryan era, I mean, well, that was 2012, but 2011. That, that sort of conversation, Medicare and Social Security were still on the table, which is a huge chunk of federal budget. If McCarthy and the Republicans have taken that off the table, is, this, is whatever deal emerges from this actually going to make an impact on the national debt as a ratio to GDP? Or is it just sort of re- Republicans are trying to, Republicans just trying to get a win because they have a, a lever? Oh, it's definitely the latter. I mean, there's, is a very big difference. I, I should also, I mean, even that kind of understates it because the 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 Boehner Republicans wanted to reduce both defense and non-defense spending. They wanted to reduce domestic spending more, but there were defense cuts. And the McCarthy House has not only taken Social Security and Medicare off the table, but they have ta- they want to increase defense spending and they want to increase veteran spending. And so, uh, at least you take them at their word. And so they've really taken over 85% of non-interest spending off the table. There is no plausible amount of cut you could do. You're taking that much of the budget off the table and all of the revenue side. Um, there's, there's basically no way to meaningfully alter the long-term budget trajectory. Okay. So, and I may want to return to that later, but um, when I was writing an article earlier this week, I talked to you on Monday. And you were sort of saying, yeah, I mean, best case scenario, uh, an agreement's reached within 48 hours, but the week has dragged on. And I've heard conflicting things all week about maybe they're really close or maybe they're still really far away. So one week out from June 1st, which is what Yellen says she thinks the X date is, where, where do things, things stand? Sort of what are the best and worst case scenarios here and, and how likely are they? Well, Price, if you ask me now, I would still say, I think we're going to get a deal in the next 48 hours. Okay. It is quite possible that if you ask me 48 hours from now, that will still be my answer. Um, that will honestly probably be my answer uh, 
that might be my answer every day between now and June 2nd. But, uh, but I do, I mean, it seems like there is progress. Um, and I'm still hopeful that they're going to get a deal in time to, to vote on it. Okay. Is that, I know McCarthy's talked about 72 hours between introducing the bill and let, so he lets people read it before it gets passed. Do you expect all that to happen? And it's just sort of, well, we sort of eke it out. Yeah. What's, what would that look like? Once, once, once Biden and McCarthy, like, let's say, by the way, we're recording this on Thursday, the 25th. If like we get off this call and there's a press conference, they say, Hey, we have an agreement. What's the timeline from there? Sure. So uh, I assume it will take a day or two to put together the legislative text. It depends on how much they've been drafting as they go versus waiting for the agreement to, to start drafting. My guess is as they get closer to the deadline, there has been more drafting each iteration um, and less waiting until the end. But there will still be some time needed to put the finishing touches. Uh, then you need 72 hours for the House to review and vote. Um, and then, you know, there's going to be the question about the Senate where individual senators can really slow things down. Um, I think ideally what everybody wants is to have it pass the House, show that it can pass the House, and then anything that the House has passed that Joe Biden has said he'll sign, we know is going to get through the Senate. Um, but if you're getting really close to the deadline and the Senate just has procedural uh, procedural delays it needs to work through, then they might need to vote on them at the same time. Um, and I think that would probably be the more stressful scenario for everybody. But I think realistically, and this is why I would still say, you know, I think we'll have a deal in the next 48 hours is I think it's pretty clear that a deal they reach in the next 48 hours can be voted on before June 1st. I'm not sure that I would say that, you know, four days from now. I wanted to ask you about an idea that I read from Josh Barrow yesterday talking about, you know, what happens if this doesn't come together before June 2nd? Like I've followed congressional negotiations enough to know like things just end up taking longer than if everyone says they're going to, even when something eventually passes. Um, and what he brought up was the case of 1985. I'm not really sure what the details of that negotiation was, but the gist as he presented it was the treasury department sort of kept saying like, yeah, this is the last day we can't, this is the X date. And then they would sort of find some other, you know, extraordinary measure that they hadn't realized existed before and sort of kept pushing it along. Is that, that sort of thing, a realistic option for the treasury to do to keep kicking the can down the road? Um, or is it, you're sort of stuck in the first week of June. I would not count on that at all. Um, because I, like, remember that the use of extraordinary measures was not common prior to 2011. 2011 was the first time we, we hit the debt ceiling and really pushed extraordinary measures to their limit. Uh, and so I would say that a lot of the low hanging fruit had not yet been picked in 1985. And between 2011 and now they've really, you know, they've, they've picked all they can. So I, and also as we're now a week out, um, and she's still saying June 1st, uh, if we, if we don't, you know, if we get to June 3rd and haven't defaulted, I think it is more likely due to dumb luck than the treasury pulling a rabbit out of their hat. Okay. So speaking of being a week out, you mentioned earlier that in 2011, they were a week out when they got the deal done and they still um, I can't remember which which rating agency did the downgrade, but there was still a downgrade in the United States um, credit score. Is that on the? Do you see that as a 
possible option here, even if McCarthy and Biden agree to something, or now just the financial markets expect a deal to happen. And so whenever it happens, they'll just be content. I think we're not. I think that as long as we don't do something worse now than we did in 2011, I think the the ratings agencies that decided not to downgrade us in 2011 will not downgrade us again. Um, if we go over the X date, then I think all bets are off. I think you know, if even if we're making bond payments, if other payments are getting delayed because we were willing to go over the X date without raising the debt ceiling, that could hurt our credit rating. If we're actually missing payments, that will definitely hurt our credit rating. So I think there is very much the prospect of a downgrade on the table if we default. But I think if Congress and the president do their jobs and get this done by the time they're supposed to, I think our credit rating is probably safe. I I wrote earlier this week about some of the different scenarios of approaching and potentially crossing the X date. But how would we know? Do do you have any idea how we would know if we did cross the X date? Like would Yellen sort of just put out a a statement saying, by the way, it happened. Like, how would we know? <laughs> I would say if you're supposed to get a payment from the government that day, it's possible you will still will if you're holding a treasury bond, but uh, your social security payment, you're going to not have it. Um, if you're a government contractor or a government employee, you're not going to have that payment. And it's going to be very obvious to you. You know, I'm sure they'll put out a press statement. I'm sure she'll talk about it. But um, that's going to be... That, that's going to be the material impact of crossing the X date. Best case scenario and maybe plurality, most likely scenario is we get a deal. Worst case is those payments start getting missed and the financial markets freak out and potentially freak out to the extent that we enter a recession. Yes. Okay. Well, I wanted to take a step back here towards the end to ask you about the debt itself because based on both this conversation and previous conversations, my sense is that you would say that the debt ceiling is bad. It would probably be better if we didn't have this like really risky fight happening every few years. Uh, but that's not because the debt itself isn't important. Um, and in fact, the debt continuing to increase as a percentage of GDP can have l- really negative long-term ramifications. And in fact, at some point in the future could you know, spiral into a, a fiscal crisis. So... Can you say a little bit more about that, sort of why people should care about the debt itself and potentially like what do you see a future in which both voters and politicians do a better job thinking about the debt responsibly? <laughs> yeah. But do I see a future? Like, can I envision it? Yes. I mean, you know, I'm a very imaginative, creative person. Um, do I think it's high probability? I don't. I mean, I've been. I started working on these issues in 2011, and I would say that with very few exceptions, each year has been worse than the one before it. Um, I I think we've been moving in the wrong direction. I did think that inflation did seem to kind of turn people a little bit, you know, start thinking a little bit more about the the impact of these fiscal choices because the the more the, the more debt we accumulate, the higher interest payments are, the higher our deficits are, the more spending there is. Um, that creates inflationary pressure, and uh, I think you know we're we're starting to see like what the implications of that might be. Um, but I don't know that that we're really you know if if we're still in the situation where the immediate start of negotiations is uh, the Republicans take most federal spending off the table. And the Democrats, by the way, also taking most revenue off the table. President Biden's 
pledge not to raise taxes on anybody raising uh, earning under four hundred thousand dollars is also very limiting. Um, you know, those positions are going to have to change if we are actually going to tackle the debt problem. So, if you were king for a day, what would you do to help? To like, there are no political consequences for you. You can just sort of wave a wand and make it happen. You know, what are you doing in terms of spending cuts that make sense, tax increases that make sense? Uh, and let's say you can also, you can choose to get rid of the debt ceiling as part of it. Yeah. Well, I mean, the first thing I'm doing is getting rid of the debt ceiling because uh, I think, I think the, the, the way to think about it is uh, if you're, you're running up your credit cards, the debt ceiling is not, is not preventing you from putting money on the credit card. It's just preventing you from paying the bill. And the problem is, is the debt you're running up, not the fact that you're paying the bill when it comes to you. So I would get rid of the debt ceiling and I would put in place a process that forces Congress to grapple with the actual budget decisions themselves, not financing those decisions. Um, but you know, ultimately, it, you know, no process is going to make Congress do something they don't want to do. Uh, so they, they, have to, they have to actually enact better policies. We have uh, obviously not something that I can go into uh, in a couple of minutes here, but we have uh, a 95-page budget blueprint on our website that we did in 2019 that I think is still uh, operative. Most of the policies would still make sense. Um, and it's a combination of uh, tax changes, uh, spending, entitlement reforms uh, that would, you know, together put the debt on a downward trajectory as a percent of GDP. And there's there's a lot of different policies in there because it's a pretty big problem. But I think it is it is one that you could mathematically tackle if you had the political will. I'm just not sure that we do. Well, on that note, uh, Ben, thanks for uh, sharing your time and knowledge. And I look forward to looking at that blueprint and would encourage our listeners to do so as well. So thank you. Anytime. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18+. Plus.